You're listening to episode 45 of In Film We Trust. I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show! As a blizzard of 1899 sets in, we set our sights on Snow Hill, Utah, where a band of outlaws, bounty hunters, and lawmen will converge. Starring Eurostaple Jean-Louis Trignignant, Corbucci's Snow Western is a polemic work of art with clear implications and a mean execution. So stick with us as we discuss the making of, the story, and the political ramifications of one of Italy's standout and greatest entries into the Western genre. So I think this is something we've mentioned on the podcast before. Both of us are from Scotland. Right. And last week we talked about A Simple Plan, which was, I think you'd agree, a very cold-looking film. And now this week we're doing another cold-looking film. Do you think people are going to accuse us of some kind of bias? And do you know what's appropriate? Yes. We are forecast for a little bit of snow today. Well, there we go. We're going to have to do snowy films for the next month then. (laughs) But look, we are in winter and both of these films are fitting, especially this one, especially A Simple Plan. A Leech, what we done for our Christmas special, also took place in a snowscape. I really like it. I love this cold weather and I love snowing. I much prefer cold weather to hot weather. I find because it's easier for me you know, to warm up than it is to cool down. I, f- I just feel a lot more comfortable in cold climates. Oh, dididdums. Exactly. So it's, it's as weird as it sounds, it's kind of brutal as this film and the last one was. I'd almost be more comfortable than there than in, I don't know. Like the wake and fright environment, even though <laughs> even though I did live there for you a while. You did live in Australia, so I what are you on about? Australia. We've mentioned that before. And as you well, worked in Australia. I did work in Australia. And you've done hard labour in Australia. Very uncomfortable temperatures. Were you an ex-convict? No, I was not an ex-convict. <laughs> <laughs> I was not an ex-convict. Nope. I was a farmhand, which was tough. But I'd say that's the toughest job I've ever had, working on a cattle farm in Queensland. But this environment, snowy environment... More to my liking. More to your liking. And our first Western. Our first Western. Yeah. We did tease in our first uh, uh, episode of this year, A Field in England. You know how that kind of descended into almost a spaghetti Western looking type film? Well, we are attacking our first spaghetti Western of the podcast ever. Yeah, last week it was the first Sam Raimi film. This week we've got our first Western. You mentioned that before. Is that our first Western? And I have to like look through the episodes because we've done, you know, as we say, we do films yes. mainstream uh, underground's kind of back and forth. Yeah, our very first Western film. Is it one of those genres you think a lot of people really should talk about in terms of films because of how hugely influential, how long-lasting it's been in cinema? I think it's us late to the party, Wayne. I, I think everybody else loves <laughs> Westerns. They are forever. <laughs> here, here, right, for the longest time, I know this is probably treason when you're a film fan for the longest time i didn't like westerns it took me till my 20s till i liked westerns because they were always on when you were sick from school or something in the afternoon and there were always the horrible boring black and white ones okay so you just had a bad introduction to them is what you'll say yes they were never fun they were always something your grandparents would watch yeah it's like disliking a particular actor because the first few films you've seen of theirs you hated right i was like that with colin firth the first few of his films i've seen i absolutely hated them because they were just like really dull rom-coms oh i always hated his early ones do you know what i also hate his late ones his later ones. <laughs> After King's Speech, he's had a kind of, yeah, he's been kind of patchy, we'll say. They call him Blandforth for a reason. <laughs> it's not a very clever nickname, that is but, it. But, right, Spaghetti Westerns, the actual term, is, if we are let be led to believe, was coined by the Spanish journalist Alfonso Sanchez. Mm. Funnily enough, do you know what a Spaghetti Western in Japan is called? It's not very clever, just... You're not, it's not going to call a Sushi Western, is it? Macaroni Western. They're referring to spaghetti, Italian westerns. Oh, I thought you meant like Japanese. No, I, I no. Thought, I thought you were talking like Kurosawa come films. On, like, come on, Films like Yojimbo and things like that. Well, they're, well, they're a massive influence on spaghetti westerns. It is, yeah. In fact, did I believe I was when I was reading, Kurosawa actually sued, I think it was either Sergio Leone or Corbucci, about ripping off Yojimbo. I think it, it was I think it was only because it was the Fistful trilogy, I think. The Dollars trilogy. And I think, mm. yeah, you're referring to the first one, A Fistful of Dollars from 1964, starring International Star... Clint Eastwood. The man with no name. Yeah, but funnily enough, this this is how kind of disrespected Italian Westerns were at the time. And I think it's because Westerns are so Americana, it's mm. beyond belief that 
prior to them taking a main stage, that an Italian would be directing them. Because when A Fistful of Dollars was released in the United States, Sergio Leone was credited as Bob Robertson. That was <laughs> that was his anglicised name. That's and essentially it, Robert Robertson. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it wasn't until A Fistful of Dollars became a huge hit that he could revert back to, look, I'm Sergio Leone. Why, would they be worried that audiences are offended that a non-American is d- directing a Wild West movie? Was that the whole thought process? Well, that, that would happen throughout Spaghetti Western history, especially in the 60s. Italian actors would take on anglicised names, so there would be you know something generically English-sounding. So, and I think that... Is that to trick the audience? Because you've got to remember, Italian cinema especially genre cinema, was always seen as second class. Mm. It was always a knockoff of an American version. For example, you had the Spaghetti Westerns, which was a knockoff of the American Westerns. Mm. You had, the, in the 70s, the Polizio Teshi films, which yeah. were a knockoff of American police films yeah. and action films. So you always had this second-tier quality with Italian cinema, which has been reappraised, and that is no longer the case. People actually respect these films now. Is it also because when you think of the names, if they see a name they don't recognise, or maybe even a name they can't pronounce, it's almost going to put them off? I think like, so. Like, uh, what was the guy that worked with Fellini, Marcel uh, Mastriani? Mar- Marcello Mastriani. Mar- Marcelli, that's how you say his name, yeah. Like, he's a great actor. I think he's absolutely fantastic. One of the best. It's an important influence on this film, yeah, actually, yeah. as well. Yes. But it's almost like you hear that name, you don't recognise him. He's not a Bogart, he's not a Lauren Bacall, Catherine Hepburn, whatever. It's like it puts them off. It, it takes them out of a comfort zone, maybe, because a lot of these films, like the one we talk about today, they only gained recognition. They were kind of cult films. They only gained recognition later in life. Well, they gained appraisal later in life because these were box office successes. Mm-hmm. These weren't underground films. But yes, critically, they have been reappraised through the years. And I was like, to get a through line into this episode, I was thinking, what's one of the earliest examples? Because spaghetti westerns aren't a 60s trope. No. It, they became famous in the 60s, of course. And I couldn't exactly find when the first one, but I thought an interesting one which would tie into this episode was, and here's here's a nice fact I had no idea about. In 1913, there was an Italian Western called The Indian Vampire, which was directed <laughs> by none other than Sergio Leone's dad, Vincenzo Leone, and starred Leone's own mother, Bice Wallerin. I think that's, I hope that's pronounced right. Right. That sounds like an Ed Wood film. <laughs> it's, it's a... It's a <laughs> Western horror. Totally legitimate. Yeah, yeah. You could even go back even further and say, like, maybe uh, The Great Train Robbery, which is the Australian film, because that's using kind of elements of Western. So it's, it's like when we talked about horror films. Some say that film, The House of the Devil, was the right. original one. But then again, you get a lot of films that kind of have little elements, but it's when it coalesces into one product. People say that was the very first exactly. one. Exactly. It's very hard to pinpoint these things, but as we're let's explicitly now talk about 60s. Yeah. The 60s, we had the three Sergios, as they were called. We had <laughs> Sergio Leone, Sergio Cabucci, and Sergio Salima. Yeah. Salima is maybe not quite as regarded as the other two, though he did notably make The Big Gun Down, starring Van Cleef and Thomas Millian, which mm. is a very highly regarded film within the spaghetti western genre. And of course, Sergio Corbucci quote-unquote, the other Sergio, as he's referred to. (laughs) He's always been second tier to Sergio Leone. I think uh, that was the point I was going to make. When you mention Italian cinema, you mention Sergio, it's almost certain people are going to think Leone because you think your Dollars trilogy, uh, Once Upon a Time in America as well. It's like he was the one that made it really commercially viable because he was the one the first to get like big recognition it's unfortunate that you become the other somebody when you do contribute great things to the cinematic landscape well leone and corbucci are tied in many ways they actually worked together for years in peplum films and for our listeners who aren't maybe familiar with the peplum genre it's literally the sword and sandal genres okay and they worked together on the last days of pompeii which starred bodybuilder steve reeves yeah, I've heard of that, yes. Do you mean Sword and Sand, like any of Spartacus, things like yes, that? Yes, things like that, yeah. Perfect. Italians would have their own version, and they were called Peplum films. Things that took place in environments very different to what we're talking about today and in the last film as well, the Sword and Sandal epics. And a beautiful tie-in, Wayne, to our Cannibal Holocaust episode. <laughs> for years, for years on many, many films, Corbucci's frequent assistant director was none other than Ruggiero Diodato. 
the madman. And there is a quote from Diodato, and he says, Bolognini taught me elegance, Rossellini taught me how to tell a story, and from Corbucci, I learned cruelty. Mm. That's the problem. It's the ones who are in the public eye that get the recognition, but behind the scenes, these people all work together, because you have to realise, uh, you have to remember, if you take something like the Academy Awards, as scoffed right, as it yeah. is, Ital- Italy is the most successful and when it comes to like best international films. Yep. They went, a lot of the big ones were from Italy, like France and Italy is where a lot of the big ones came from. Well, you had the great art directors, Antonioni, you had Fellini, as we said, Marcello Mastroianni in Eight and a Half, La Dolce Vita. These are great, great films. They're very different to the ones we're discussing today, but they're none other great films. Now, let's think of that, Wayne. As we were saying, you've got Leone Corbucci and Salima, the mm. three Sergios. Now, think <laughs> in the, the year 66 alone, you had from Leone, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm. From Corbucci, Django, Django. Salima, the big gun down. So you could argue 66 was, in a way, the biggest single year almost for Spaghetti Westerns. You definitely can't talk of Corbucci without Django. Django brought in a new era of violence to cinema. There is literally a scene in that film where a guy has his ear chopped off and is fed to him. His own ear. Yeah, because when you look at the comparisons with Leone, Leone did get a lot of critical praise, but for a lot of his uh, career, Corbucci was almost seen as more of an exploitation filmmaker. A lot of his films were not praised for the violence, they were derided for it. Right, and I think Corbucci's world is vastly different to Leone's. Corbucci is, he, as you said, he's working very, very much in genre, where I think Leone is trying to elevate it to the epic, to the grand, to the spectacle. And I don't think Corbucci is necessarily interested in that. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Corbucci made, I think, 13 westerns. Leone made vastly fewer than that, because I think, as somebody said, there is no Corbucci masterpiece without one sloppy scene, but there is also not one of his weak films with (laughs) one brilliant scene. Corbucci was vastly more prolific than Leone. Leone was very much, you know, in the Tarantino mold, where everything you are is within that film and you space them out to create you know a perfect filmography where Corbucci was let's get this done onto the next one let's get this done onto the next one that doesn't mean he's not without talent he's a vastly talented guy and I think Corbucci's world is vastly summed up in his film Django the opening to Django you have Franco Nero playing the mysterious Django he's black clad he's trailing a coffin beside him So, okay, we're automatically supposed to suspect this morbid character. He's, you know, it holds on a long shot. There's a woman. She's being whipped by some Mexicans, a band of Mexicans. Here comes in the distance our quote-unquote white saviors (laughs) in their white hats. You know, they look very cowboy, regal. Well, they kill the Mexicans, but they also are after the girl. They have no respect for her either. Django comes in, he kills all of them. And I think this is summing up Corbucci in one sequence, the confliction between violence, beauty, everything is mixed. There's no black and white. Speaking of Corbucci uh, Corbucci and conflictions as well, he didn't just do westerns because what's weird is he'll do a western movie, it'll be very violent, very bloody, it'll have scenes like you were just describing, but then he'll go over and he'll do comedies like he did he was famous for doing comedies with like Bud Spencer and Terence Hill bloodless movies so it wasn't <laughs> like it wasn't like he didn't have range he could do something over here then he would go and he would do something over here well i think that was especially a trend in the 70s uh the director Barboni done a film they call me trinity and that kind of kicked off in the the western genre to more comedic elements and that also starred Bud Spencer and Terence Hill And they were taking the elements of the Western and injecting a lot of humor, a lot of fun, more, let's say, mainstream orientated. Hmm. And it was kind of, I think, a lot of it doing a lot of these Westerns because he made a lot of Westerns, Corbucci, and I think it did kind of wear on him. He said at one point he grew tired of making Westerns. He said, I hate the horses in the desert. I go back to town wanting to make a film about a man who drives a car, uses a phone, and watches TV. (laughs) But once I'm there, I start thinking how nothing is finer in cinema than a horseman with the uh, setting sun and the red sky. When you think of that, you think of the... 
the mythology, the romanticism yes. of the Western films. You think of like the classics with John Ford and starring John Wayne. But what was interesting, I think, about the spaghetti westerns is how they were often demythologized. They were de-romanticized. They kind of deconstructed the classic cowboy westerns. They put this very unique spin on it. And I think that's why spaghetti westerns stand out and why they're still so influential. Well, they're removed. They're they're once removed from America, aren't they? They they can see it from an outsider's perspective. So you you can, as you say, demythologize. You can deglamorize. Mm. You can point a finger at the country without participating in the country itself because you're getting a third perspective. And I think that is important in life in general to get that third eye point of view. And it definitely works to Spaghetti Western's favour in most films. Some some are just trying to, you know, be a uh, rip-off of American cinema. <laughs> but films like this, it's set in 1898, I'm 18, pretty sure. I think it's 1898. I think it was set during a real event, during an actual, like an actual blizzard that happened at the time or, in that or, location. Yes, the, the Great Blizzard of... 1899. Where it's set, the interesting thing about the setting, about the kind of environment of the film, when you think of westerns, you mentioned sword and sandal epics, you think of the sands and the deserts. This is set in the mountains, in the middle of the winter, the freezing cold, you see the big hills, you see people crossing these giant white landscapes. It looks totally different how most of the westerns at that time were portrayed. Well, for years, Corbucci had wanted to make a snow western, as he would refer Mm. to it. He originally wanted Django to be filmed in snow. The producer said, no, snow is bad luck, costs too much, it isn't going to work. But he held on to that idea for years. Mm. So that's why Django is so set in mud, because he wanted the equally oppressive, the equally grimy atmosphere, so to say. But eventually, with Django being a success, he said, you know, look, let's make your snow western. Let's Mm. set this in the snow. And this film, it was filmed in Veneto, which is a region near a ski resort in the Dolomite mountain range. Well, that makes sense. I guess the wor- one worry about uh, filming with snow, if, especially if it's real snow, is if the temperature changes, the weather changes, then that just destroys your landscape because you lose all of your snow. So I understand why it's a risk, but I guess with Django being such a success, that was the situation where he had kind of like, like after Paul Thomas Anderson made Boogie Nights, yep. the studio said to him, right, you made that, it was a big success. Here's some millions, make whatever you want. He had carte blanche to make whatever he Magnolia. wanted. Magnolia. He, Mag- he made Magnolia, which is one of those films that I reckon a lot of studios wouldn't have taken a risk on. So but he was riffing on um, Altman there even. Yeah, riffing on Robert Altman. Yeah. And here, this is obviously some kind of passion project, I guess. It had been gestating for a while. Like I say, some of the actors we've already mentioned kind of didn't talk him into it, but kind of convinced him to make a film like this about a film with, at its centre, a silent gunman. Right, but... A lot of this film, Wayne, it takes place in a town called Snow Hill. And as we're saying, this is filmed, a lot of the exteriors are shot at the the Veneto region. Some of the Snow Hill sequences, the town itself, were also filmed on location, primarily Pauline's house, the old mill and the post office. There were sets built on those locations. The rest of Snow Hill, the town itself, were shot at the Elias Film Studios, where after this film was made, it would be renovated for... Paralini's Sabata Western. Can I just point out, is Snow Hill in this film? I didn't think about this until I was doing my notes. Bit on the nose? No, not to that, just a very <laughs> redundant name. Isn't that like having a town in the Australian outback called Sandy Hill? It, seems like, it seems like a very redundant name because it's not like it stands out from the rest of it. It's just it's just another place here that just happens to be covered in snow. But hey, this is a Snow Western and at Elias Film Studios, when they were shooting at the studios, mm. they used 26 tons of shaving cream. I heard about that. It was shaving cream. Shaving cream. It's very effective. Honestly, I didn't... Well, I, you would never notice. I, I don't know. Is it just because the film is so lathered in snow? It's not one of those things that you pick up like, I'm going to look, is this really snow? But I know. Shaving, but shaving cream. What well, we- <laughs> there you go for every low-budget filmmaker out there. Just get, you know, your tin of Gillette. Hey, as we've talked about... We are the, not sponsored by Gillette. Exactly. <laughs> as we've talked with El Mariachi, we love that DIY film, exactly. that, that filmmaking approach, the do-what-you-got-to-do kind of but thing. But right, this story, the story takes place in Snow Hill, Utah, just prior to the Great Blizzard of 1899. The conditions have caused a scarcity of living, and the law has cracked down on thievery, putting a bounty on the heads of those involved. Silence, our mute hero, rides into town as a lone avenger. Loco, or Trigero, depending on which version yeah. you're listening to. And his gang collects their bounty by killing. But on the outskirts of town is a band of outlaws who have defected due to the bounty on their head for thievery. Now, Wayne, there's a new sheriff. Sheriff Barnett is on his way. And he is seen as by some as the new hope arriving. 
Mm. How much hope really is there in this? Yeah, landscape? I don't think there's much hope. That's what I like about this film. One thing I really like about it: it's not the kind of black and white filmmaking. Yeah, very much moral ambiguity. Lots of moral shades of grey in this, and that's what I like when they deconstructed it. It's not. It doesn't feel like typical kind of good guy, good guy versus bad guy narrative, which we'll get more into, of no, course. No, no. But how it's very. It, a lot of that feels a lot more ambiguous. It feels more true to life. Like no one person is all good. No one person is all bad. You have a sheriff character, but how often have we seen mm-hmm. films like this? The sheriff character is corrupt. They simply their badge is just their badge is just right. it's like a front that they hide behind. They can do whatever they want because they are the law. Exactly. It's a very in many ways it's nihilistic. Mm. But our characters look years prior. Mastroianni joked to Corbucci about starring in a western, but he couldn't speak any English. Which Mastroianni said his character will be a mute. Years later, Jean Louis Trantignon also couldn't speak English or Italian, so so Corbucci made his character a mutant. What I found interesting about these films, because apparently I was reading about Corbucci, what he would do is when a lot of the characters would read lines, he wouldn't have them read dialogue. He'd almost do like a kind of counting thing because films like this were dubbed, I think this film was dubbed into about five different languages, dubbed into like Italian and French and Spanish. So there's almost no point really delivering your lines because it's going to be dubbed over anyway. Right, so if anybody's wondering, why are Italian films, especially of this era, dubbed over? Even in the Italian language is dubbed. Mm. Well, this started during the fascist era, Mussolini, because it gave the, the party control over what was, produced Mm -hmm. because they would have final say and they could dub in whatever they wanted so it essentially is an authoritarian rule and it just for whatever reason it stuck throughout the years interestingly for me i think at least it made it the first film i've ever seen which is both dubbed and subtitled (laughs) (laughs) because i'm watching them talk like obviously it's dubbed voices and then it's and then it's it's subtitled yeah. into english so like it's very interesting it's almost like a film in three different languages at once Look, to people who aren't into Italian genre cinema of the mid-20th century, it can be a little off-putting. Yeah. You can, it does take a little time to adjust. Otherwise, it can ke- seem a little silly because it's not even the actors are dubbing their own voice. It is a voice actor in most circumstances. If you ask me to choose, I will always choose a subtitled film over a dubbed film. Of course. The thing that gets me is with dubbed films, I always find it harder to take seriously, especially if it's dramatic scene if a character is shouting or a character is breaking down crying because no matter how good the the physical performance is, you're under no illusions that voice is not coming from that character, especially it, if they choose a very inappropriate dub artist to do the dubbing. It kind dubbing. of underpins the performance and it can detract from it. It doesn't matter, as you said, the physicality. If the the vocals are off, you're like, hmm... This is a juxtaposition that ain't working very well. Also, incidentally, as a kid, I loved watching uh, more like when Bruce Lee movies. <laughs> those martial arts, like kung fu martial arts films, were brought over and they were dubbed very badly. It kind of just gives me flashbacks. That I used to watch those movies not for the fighting. I used to watch just to laugh at them. Just how bad the dubbing was. Well, the dubbing. It, well, a lot of the sound effects in kung fu films were a bit iffy. Mm. I mean, a, a single punch sounds like he's been lashed by a whip. Exactly. Someone, <laughs> someone's pointed out, they said, every single punch in it sounds like someone is throwing a stake against a wall. Yes. And now when I watch those films, I can't think, every single punch sounds exactly the same. Do you know same. why that is? Why is that? It probably is a stake on the it wall. It probably <laughs> is a stake against the wall, yes. But with this, because a lot of this is... Well, great. It's kind of a slow and very deliberate film. A lot of things are kind of underplayed. I think that's why it works. I think the menace and intimidation works best. Not the screaming, not the shouting. Think of low talking, the low threats. That works better when you have a dubbed film, I think. So our central character, Wayne, Silence. Silenzio. Oh, are we we, we being Italian? We're going to the Il Grande Silenzio, which is in Italian. I was waiting for you to input that. I'm annoyed I didn't do it earlier. Oh, you you missed one there. I should have said at the start, look, we're not going to call it the Great Sounds, we're going to call it Il Grande Silenzio because it makes us sound cooler. But Silence, (laughs) the character, Hmm. Jean-Louis Tranignon, famous French actor, famously in Bertolucci's The Conformist, which was another anti-fascist film. He was in Haneke's Amour just from about a decade ago, which he won the Caesar Award, which Mm -hmm. is the French Oscar. Very accomplished actor. actor. And for some men who may be interested, he also dated Bridget Bardot. I did read about that. (laughs) He he was no stranger to doing films like this and being dubbed as well. No, he's one of French's preeminent actors. Mm -hmm. But we talk about the guy. 
well, we'll call, we'll call him the hero for now, but you can't have a hero without a villain. And the counterpoint in this film, we've talked about Silence. Uh, yes. Then we've got Loco. Loco. Loco, played by, interesting, the word Loco in Spanish means crazy. crazy. So when you need a crazy actor, who do you get to play the part? Well, it's Loco, or in the <laughs> Italian version, it's Trigero, mm. which means the little tiger. Right, okay. Then, well, <laughs> which, I think, which one do you like? Do you have a preference? To be fair, in, in relation to the actor, I think Loco is a lot more appropriate. Together, it does sound cool, but with Loco, we've got him played by Klaus Kinski. Herzog famous, Kinski. famous nutter. <laughs> Understatement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Interestingly, Klaus Kinski, a lot of folk have probably heard about his relationship with uh, Werner Herzog. Yep. In fact, there's a great uh, documentary called Burden of Dreams yes. about them two making Fitzcarraldo. Mm-hmm. Watching that, you think, how did those two ever work together? How did they work together after that, after all they went through on that film well Cobra Verde was their last one that was the breaking point when they were filming in Africa my god they clashed like no man's business that was late 80s wasn't it late 80s and that was the last time they played it was actually a terrific film terrific terrific film there's not there's not a weak film the two made that's the, inter- that's the interesting thing. It's like their clashing personalities really worked out. And talking about him being crazy, uh, Frank Wolf, who plays the sheriff in this film, him and Klaus, uh, Kinski allegedly came to blows during the film because really? apparently what I heard is that Kinski was mocking Wolf's Jewish heritage, but Kinski said he was trying to wo- wind Wolf up so Wolf would attack him so Kinski could help get himself into character, which sounds like everything every douchey method actor has ever said to justify their shitty behaviour, isn't it? Well, Klaus Kinski had an autobiography that came out in 1988 called All I Need Is Love. Yeah. And in that <laughs> infamous book, which it, it's came to n- renown as being mostly fictitious, yeah. him and Werner Herzog pretty much lied their way through the book just to be salacious. Yeah. But in that book, he references this film, and there's an actress called Vanetta McGee, who yeah. plays Pauline, and he claims, while his family were staying in the hotel, and Paul and Vanetta McGee was, you know, in a room above, he tiptoed over his sleeping wife and child and having an affair with Vanetta. I don't know if that's true. It may be, it may not. This is... Kinski, whose whole life is a myth. <laughs> I think the problem with someone like Kinski, who has the reputation he does, you tend to take everything he says with a pinch of salt, especially his boastful claims. You think, how much of that's true? Because I know Herzog did he, was it, he made Herzog and Herzog. I think he kind of rubbished a lot of Kinski's claims. Right. So, do you want to set up Silence the character for yeah. people? Silence the character is a bounty hunter. This film really revolves a lot around bounty hunters. He's a man who has a, we'll say, a quiet determination. He's a man who rides into town. He never speaks. He's mute from uh, from an attack, essentially, when he was a child. His parents were killed. Yes. And in order to stop him, the kid, from telling anybody, they cut his throat. Mm-hmm. Did he, had he learned how to write? Because sure, he could write a message to somebody. <laughs> could he not? I didn't think of that. Like, like are you going to cut his fingers off as well? Mm-hmm. But he comes into, he essentially comes into Snow Hill. He's brought in yep. to avenge... Uh, a woman's husband's death, the woman Pauline, who you mentioned before. For me, Silence, did you feel he represented the concept of lawful evil, is what I felt? Because you have lawful evil, then you have Loco, who is the opposite. Loco is a mercenary. He's a bounty hunter as well, but he's much more ruthless. I felt he was like chaotic evil, because I feel Silence and Loco were positioned as being like two sides of the same coin. There, there is an element to that because neither of neither of them will draw their gun in public before their enemies do. So mm. when they kill, they do it legally and in self-defense. And that is a trait that both Silence and Loco share. Mm. But it kind of makes sense with, with, with Silence because he's positioned as more of the good guy, but he's still a killer. That's the whole thing. This movie has so many killers in them. There's Pretty much everybody is a murderer. It was a wild time, being the Wild West. So it was a time, as we say, of... Much lawlessness, but but this is Corbucci's. You know, this is this is his work. This is his blurring of the black and white. This is what he does, Wayne. It's the nihilism, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Kinski, uh, sorry, Loco. He actually refers to other bounty hunters as colleagues, which I think would be weird. if they're other bounty hunters and you're chasing a bounty, would they not be your rivals? Because he has like because <laughs> he has a gang. Like, say in like Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where we see like Lee Van right. Cleef taking the posters. Obviously, they're kind of competing against each other. But here, it's like a gang of bounty hunters. Like, do they just kill one guy and then split the profits? <laughs> Because in real life, Corbucci, the man, he was very much on the left, left-wing politics. Yeah. And I think that comes into play in this film. Because as a child, Corbucci was part of the fascist youth choir. 
because remember he he grew up in fascist Italy. Fascist Italy, yeah. That and he actually sang for a visiting Hitler, <laughs> and not oh, only yeah. that, but Corbucci's dad was a uniform wearing fascist. Mm-hmm. But if legend is to believe, as soon as Corbucci's father came through the door, he tossed his jacket to the side. So I think it was a perfunctory performance in a sense why his dad was a fascist. But look, Corbucci rebelled against this. He was a man of the left. This film is a leftist film. Mm -hmm. It's clearly identically politically on the left. And I think that is why we have Loco, Kinski, of course, and we have the banker Pollocka, played by Luigi Pistelli, who, you know, he's a genre staple. He starred in Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. There's a title. (laughs) It's a good title. And in Mario Bava's Bay of Blood, also known as, I like this term, Twitch of the Death Nerve. That is a really good title. It is a good title. That sounds like a heavy, like a kind of heavy metal album from the (laughs) 80s, actually. Twitch of the Death Nerve. And he was also in the last $2 trilogy. But anyway, Loco and the banker, Polycott, they represent the establishment, don't they? Yes. And those who profit profit from it at the expense of the people. Because let's remember, Loco is crazy. Literally, in the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, but... He is working within the means of the law. He Hmm. is not breaking the law in this film. He is a bounty hunter, and he is using legal means to get that bounty. Yeah, he's definitely a representation of conservatism. I don't know how you can watch that and not get this, because the idea is he is holding onto power. He's a banker, but he's also kind of the judge. You get the feeling he wasn't elected. He just kind of, maybe he just took that took that position and he is able this is what's critical about him he is able to place bounties on people's heads and it feels in this movie like with the sheriff coming in they're trying to move away from that way of life moving away from just arbitrarily placing bounties on people's heads so Polica representing this conservatism doesn't want that to change because if that changes he loses his power well to set it up Polica is in placing a bounty on thieves and people have turned to thievery because this blizzard is setting the means are scarce, so they're having to, you know, rob, for example, to stay alive, to maintain. And because Polycat knows this, and they knew, and they know they can profit from this, him, Loco, they have placed the bounty on all these citizens of the of the town of Snow Hill. Yeah, as we mentioned before, the demysticism and the de-romanticism, we don't just have your great heroes and your great villains, we also have the regular members of society who here are deemed bandits because it's freezing conditions, they're having to steal for food, they're having to kind of huddle together in the cold. And it's the film demonstrating the very harsh and unforgiving lives people uh, lived back then. One person even remarks, the bandits who were out, they were basically forced out of the town. One bandit remarks, you know, we may get arrested. One says, well, at least prison is warm. <laughs> First of all, how grim is that? You'd rather be in prison yeah. if it's warm. Second of all, I guarantee it's not. I bet prison is freezing cold as not well. Not in Snow Hill. Not in Snow Hill, where everything is freezing cold. But look, this this film is a critique of capitalism. Yes. I don't think there is any two ways about that. No. The fact that the citizens, including the prostitutes, hate the system, yet it prevails, is an indictment of the political system that benefits if it's only a few, yet it continues to be maintained. And that is a critique. And that's a critique even to this day, Wayne. How many people are unhappy with the system they live in, Mm. yet it prevails, yet nobody benefits apart from, you know, quote-unquote, famously, the 1%. Yeah, because the people in power, the thing that they worry the most about, especially if they've taken power by, we'll say like an iron fist, the thing they're most worried about is losing their power. That's why they place these bounties. You don't like someone, you need to get rid of them. Right. got such marginalised because the bandits are they're like the marginalised they're the minority they've been driven out of their homes they're living in the mountains they're freezing at one point they have to kill someone not because uh, sorry they rob somebody just to eat their horse the sheriff the sheriff they it's have the to, sheriff they the, sheriff, to rob has the, sheriff. To the sheriff has come to town to bring some kind of justice and they have to rob him and take his horse and eat it that's how desperate these people are the sheriff does that, take that quite well I have to say <laughs> he does yes he seems like just somebody stepped on his toe. He seems almost like the more jovial character. I'd say he's almost the most... Sheriff Burnett. Sheriff Burnett. Almost the most righteous. He's the one that feels like, when it comes to the law, he's almost the one who is exercising it in the most appropriate manner. Would it doesn't you, feel like he's trying to bend it like Polycat is, for example. Would you say, quote-unquote, that Bar- Sheriff Burnett is the, the white-hat cowboy? Yes, He represents yeah. the good. He, he's in the law, he's working within the law, but he's not exploitive. No, he's the sheriff. He's like the Gary Cooper character. He's the guy that comes into town. Or the Wyatt Earp, for example, right. the one who's come to kind of clean up the town. And, you know, tragically, Wayne... 
Burnett was played by Frank Wolf. Yeah. In real life, in the early 70s, this is quite tragic. In the early 70s, he killed himself in a Rome hotel room by slitting his throat. Jesus. That was not That's even heavy. Not, not, not even that long after this film was made. No, 68 the film, so you know, four or five years later. Was he just like depressed about his I think he had had troubles with depression throughout oh, his life. Oh, was that what it was? Yeah. It's a shame because I think he gives a great performance in it. I like how it really counterpoints the bandits as how and the bounty hunters, how he sees himself as a man of the law. But like, what is the law here? It's like everyone here has their own definition of what the law is. Because Polika says at one point, the law has a right to kill. When the law kills, it's not murder, it's punishment. <laughs> Sounds like a way that Polycut would use to justify it. He'd say, this person was killed. Ah, there was a bounty placed on their head. It's the law. That's just politicking, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's just, hide- it's just it's hiding behind a false front. And there's a lot of mythologizing around the character of silence. The sheriff, at one point, he says, uh, somebody says, wherever he goes, the silence of death follows him. Another thing the chef says about silence, he says, for all I know, he is the devil. So it's like he's spoken about in almost these, pardon the pun here, but these hushed tones. Well, interestingly, Corbucci famously inserted comic book elements into his film. He was a fan of comic books as a child. And you could draw that parallel with silence. There is not necessarily anything special about silence. And we even get his origin story, which Mm. is very comic book-like. And not only is there nothing special about him... The thing what gives him the advantage is a special weapon, the Hmm. Mauser, which was an automatic pistol at the time. Yes, I think it was, yeah. And that separates him from the others. It gives him his, you know, superpower, so to speak. So in a a sense, you know, Silence is a comic book character. He is the panache of a comic book character. Yeah, without even being that fascinating a kind of character in himself. It's more how he's counterpointed to the other ones. It's more about how we see his interactions with the other characters, how apparently when he was practicing for this role, he would actually pull his hand out of a glove and then snatch an artichoke out of his pocket because he does look like he's very well trained. He's shooting, I remember he's shooting potatoes at one point. Yes. I didn't think, in a time when people are starving, it's a waste of potatoes. Hey, Barnett does eat a potato. <laughs> he, he, he knows it's not going to waste. There's nothing better than a potato with a bullet in it. I know. <laughs> Stick that on a t-shirt. But one of the central uh, relationships within this film is Silence and Pauline. Hmm. Pauline is introduced into this film because her her husband has been killed because he has a bounty on his head for thievery. Loco places him in the snow <laughs> to, you know, so his body doesn't decompose before he can take this bounty to his superiors. Take him fresh. When you ever hear Loco talk, pretty much any time a kill is mentioned, he mentions money. That's the first thing he talks about. Well, that's about. all it's about. It's the financial gain. Of course, Wayne, as we say, we don't knock on the head. The critique of capitalism. Exactly. I don't even think, do you even think that Kinski really overplays the role? He plays it Way no, he's low- great in this film. Yeah, he is great. He plays it way lower. I think that's the intimidation factor I was talking about earlier, how he doesn't need to shout. He doesn't need to make any grand gestures. Just the fact that he has the law on his side, he has that power, that's where his intimidation comes from. Now, I don't know if this is a happy accident, a coincidence, or purposeful casting, but Kinski, you know, the, the exploiter, and mm-hmm. this film's a critique of fascism, capitalism, every ism you want to say, yeah. okay? So... Kinski, he's German, blonde, blue-eyed. He stands apart. He's different. He could represent the Aryan, the, the the fascist ideal. That's an interesting concept there. I wonder if he has been chosen. Look, he's a staple of Spaghetti Westerns, Kinski, which Herzog hated. He thought Kinski was wasting his time on <laughs> genre trash, so to speak. He should be making movies with me where he has a good time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> said no one I think I think it's an interesting visual representation because when you see him how he does stand out because everybody else looks kind of wearied and withered yes. everyone's kind of like dark colours dark hair but then he comes in he's got his fancy hat blue eyes blonde hair do we dare say fascistic possibly yes right right maybe. because like him and his group who are I don't want to say they use the word oppression, but it is in a sense, because using these bounties, I think it was almost like a witch hunt. It was like witch accusation, because if you accuse someone back in the day of being a witch, if you said you weren't, that was just denial. There was really nothing you could do. Your accusation was as good as your death sentence. And it just led to this, in this film anyway, these bounties, it just led to this arbitrary and unlawful killing. And Loco revels in it because he's making so much money. He has a much more broken moral compass than someone like Silence, who at least does seem to be doing things for good reason because Pauline recruits Silence 
to avenge her husband's death. And we get an interesting relationship between Silence and Pauline. And do you think this film, I think it was praised for being very progressive in terms of yeah. like sexual rights, mm -hmm. because I think we got the swinging 60s and not long happened, the sexual revolution. Because with Pauline, she's she has a lot of agency over her own character. It often doesn't feel like she's forced to think. She makes decisions. I think Polika forces himself on her at one point. She fights him off. Right. She initiates the bond with silence. Even when there's a romantic moment, it's her that initiates it. She's in charge of the situation. Well, Pauline's played by Vanetta McGee, as we mentioned previously. This was her debut film. Yeah. What a debut. <laughs> what a debut. It wasn't her first released film, which I know sounds sketchy. She, But this was her first film first acted in film mm -hmm. one beat it to the punch yeah another one but she became in the 70s a staple of black exploitation films such as blackula and shaft in africa she was in. <laughs> and you know eminent uh, expert of spaghetti westerns alex cox you know brilliant uk director when he was making repo man he cast her in that film purely because he was such a fan of this. Yeah, and that was what Repo Man was, what, the 80s? Yes. So, like, for a film from decades earlier, he's seen that and decided to cast her based on her performance in that film. But what is notable for Pauline, played by Vanetta McGee, is she is a black woman. Yes. And you, this wasn't a typical in the genre of Westerns to have a black star. But not only that, Wayne, it was the interracial relationship aspect mm -hmm. because... 1965's A Patch of Blue star in Sidney Poitier was the first film to contain an interracial kiss between a white man and black, or a black man and white woman, or vice versa. Mm. And you had that Star Trek episode, which I think it was kind of around that time when you had William Shatner and there was an interracial kiss there. It's crazy to think at that point, even a kiss would put people but off. It would be censored, banned. But that Star Trek is sometimes erroneously labelled as the first interracial kiss on TV. But here in the UK itself, we had You in Your Small Corner, 1962, which was a TV play of the week. It's the world's first known interracial on-screen kiss. And the mm. actors were Lloyd Reckford and Elizabeth McClellan. Mm. So this is 68. That's not far removed. We're still within the same decade. We're still revolutionary here. Mm -hmm. There's still levels of conservatism, but it feels like her being, I think she's the only black woman in the film, that's not fetishized in any way. No. The film is all about her and her quest for revenge. She's just, she's a very well-done character. She's a very well-written character. I love how she's played. I love the relationship she has with Silence, how it has to be communicated in a non-verbal way. There's a lot of that with uh, with Silence. Because he can't talk, the way he finds out about other characters, there's one scene I absolutely love where Loco, uh, Silence, finds himself in a stagecoach with the sheriff <laughs> and with Loco. I think straight away, hateful eight. So our prince... Well, <laughs> well there's, a, there's the thing... I wonder how many people came to this film from The Hateful Eight, because mm. I was relatively late to this film. I only saw this for the first time last year. Okay. I was a fan of The Hateful Eight. I mm -hmm. know you don't like that film, mm -hmm. do you? No, not, uh, not as much as a lot of other teams. I wasn't a fan of Hateful Eight. Is there a reason? Is there a reason? Uh, I think it was very drawn out. I felt a lot of the scenes were on way too long. I liked the kind of violent elements into it mm -hmm. and the acting, but yeah, for me, it was just way too drawn out. Do you see the... Compa you, can, you can see the influence, though, through this yeah. film and uh, yeah. Hateful Eight, beyond the snow. Yeah, yeah, not just the snow cinematography, the way it's paced, the way it has that claustrophobic atmosphere when they're in the certain buildings. It feels like Hateful Eight is almost a modern-day update of this. It's very clear, because that's what Tarantino does, doesn't he? He takes these elements from the films he grew up with, the films he loves, and he bases his film around them. And, and the Morricone score. And the Morricone score Which is well. the first time Tarantino ever worked with a composer for a film. It was, yeah. And that was what won, won Morricone's first Oscar. I know. Well done, Morricone. It, it was a, look, for, <laughs> shit on that film you want. I loved the Hateful Eight hmm? uh, soundtrack, that score. It was fantastic, yeah. I, I know... Tarantino and uh, Morricone came to blows during that, with oh, yeah. Morricone accusing Tarantino of not knowing what the hell he was doing. <laughs> but it's a great score, and this film is a fucking great score also. It is a good score. It creates that foreboding atmosphere, that, that bleakness, because this film does feel very bleak. And it is a completely different score to Morricone's work with Leone. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is a completely different approach. This almost uh, has horrific elements to the score, would you say? Yes. Because I know Bruno Nicolai also worked on the score, who is, you know, one of the greatest giallo film composers there is. Yeah, we do like talking about our giallo films. Yes, we're it's, very Italian. The whole score feels perfectly fit into it. It keeps you in that atmosphere of suspense, because this is not... 
this is not a rushed movie. Don't watch this movie expecting like a big action piece. It's very slow. It's very deliberate. It makes you feel the grind that people are living in. And that's why I think the score works so well. So atmospheric. Right. When we are talking of politics in this film, Mm. you can't escape politics without the last scene in this film. Mm. The last scene of this film, or last sequence of this film, is when the outlaws, who are on the outskirts of town, have been rounded up by Kinski and his men. They are in a local shop. They are strung up, tied up. Mm -hmm. Most importantly, previous to that... Silence has a run-in with some of Loco's men. Yes. And because I was drawing parallels, Wayne, to the whole superhero comic book aesthetic, mm-hmm. because we're working within that kind of trope, Silence, who has this superpower, this Mauser gun, for example, well, to shoot that effectively, you need working hands. Yep. But... What happens when that superpower has been taken away? Because that's effectively what happens. He is overpowered, he is shot, but most importantly, his right hand, his shooting hand, has they place it on a burning coal fire, mm-hmm. thereby taking the superpower away from him. And I think that is important because it leads him to go down to Loco and his men where Loco has all these outlaws tied up. He's effectively been neutered at this point. Right. That's basically his kryptonite. He's had his hands he's had his hand burned. As soon as that burned I thought how is he going to be able to fight Loco? Because early on, the film does set up very well what's going to happen later on because we have, I think, the first face-off between Loco and Silence. It Very cleverly, through direction, through the way it's played out, you realise there is going to be a showdown. There's going to be a mano a mano meeting between these two down the line. It's obviously a duel is going to take place later on. Well, as they're tied up, Wayne, we see through the windows all these men tied up. Loco approaches Silence, who is outside this shop Mm. and most importantly what happens is you may think that silence is going to overpower him some way Mm -hmm. but no he is shot down in cold blood when pauline comes to his rescue she's also shot down yeah which i think this now this would be shocking in its time yeah and i think it, it pretty much still is because you almost expect the hero to prevail but this kind of is capturing the zeitgeist of the late 60s you had Bonnie and Clyde, they are shot down. They're the anti-heroes of that film. Yeah. You had Easy Rider, where the two are shot down. It's very much this polemic piece about when you fight the system, the system will always prevail. And I think that is what this film is saying. Because after they are shot down, silence, Pauline, one of the last shots or possibly the last shot, is Kinski's reflection in the window and the slaughtered outlaws behind him and we see it through a window and why is that important thematically to this film because it is indicative of the transparency within the film of the consequences of capitalism and its victims we see it through the window because the the corbucci is telling us these ills of society are transparent what is happening is transparent yet the system prevails this might sound really strange but when i seen that ending i was very happy that they did that that might sound weird because we talk about the subversion of narratives. We're talking about a subversion of the good versus bad narratives. Could what would usually happen in, say, like a John Wayne film, he's the hero, we'd have yeah. a duel against the bad guy, kill all the good guys, ride off into the sunset. It was a happy ending. For me, few things ruin a film more than a tacked-on happy ending. Interestingly, they actually tried to do that. Oh, because, yeah. Do you know this film was intended for a Christmas release? Yeah. Hey, kids. Get around the yep. let's gather and have open presents. No, yeah, possibly, <laughs> probably yeah. But Corpucci was made to put together a happy ending where earlier in the film, the sheriff. What interesting about the sheriff? The sheriff is essentially killed off and forgotten about because mm. he falls into a lake. We'll assume he's dead. We're on. A, we're on about the, an alternative ending. Yes, now, this I'm is a, this is the alternative happy ending. Yeah. Just give you an idea of how bad an idea this would have been. He's been attacked by Loco, he's sunk in this lake, he doesn't have a horse, he doesn't have a gun anymore. He comes back, kind of last minute, (laughs) and shoots Loco. That is a complete deus ex machina. That is a total, where did that come from? It's ridiculous. Exactly, it's ridiculous. So he gets killed, Silence survives, 
all of the villagers right. survive. There was even an ambiguous ending, yes. which is where Silence got shot, doesn't die, but he gets shot and Loco just leaves, and the fate of everyone is left ambiguous. Usually I like... Which, which is a re-edit. It's, it's not a refilming. They're just yeah. editing a different way to leave ambiguity. Usually I kind of like an ambiguous ending, but that almost just feels like it was flat and they didn't know how to end it. Well, well let me tell you why, for the main part, there was the happy ending tacked on. Because this was released in Italy and it was released in France, and there were huge success was never released in the United States and it was never released in the UK cinematically. Well, here, listen to this, Wayne, right? Mm. 20th Century Fox bought the rights for this film. They weren't happy with the the downer ending, so to speak. So they bought it with rumours that it was for Clint Eastwood to star. Right. So they were going to make it an Americanized version where I'm assuming Clint Eastwood saved the day. Well, that never happened. It never... And to this day, I'm not sure why. But, listen to this. Several years later, 1972, 20th Century Fox would bring out a film called Joe Kidd, starring Clint Eastwood. Coincidentally, he would be armed with a Mauser. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I can see where this is going. There we go. <laughs> Do you know why I like the downbeat ending? Do you know why I like the bleak ending of this film? Because it's a bleak film. If you have a bleak film, that's the tone you're going for. I'm very happy for you to have that bleak ending. Talking about bleak, in West Germany... This film, you might even like this because it is extra bleak. The title of this film in West Germany when it was released was Corpses Pave His Past. Wow. Do you like that? Do you like that title? I thought you'd like that title. Do you like it? They may as well just rename it to He Dies at the End. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds, oh, that sounds more like, that's like a Rob Zombie title. Yeah, that, for, yeah that's a Rob Zombie version. For a film that, but this film is dealing with not being able to win against the system, the system being too strong, too powerful. That's what happens. The system wins. It's yeah. a bleak ending, but it's a bleak film film it serves its purpose you because ex- you expect loco okay he's got both of his hands are buggered he can't, <laughs> buggered. <laughs> they're buggered to use the technical term yep. he can't get to his gun loco is bearing down on him right he's going to pull something out of his hat but he doesn't he dies the bandits are all slaughtered loco wins bad the bad guys win and that is the point, because this film was based, this film was influenced by the deaths of the revolutionaries Che Guevara and Malcolm X. Mm. And they fought the system. Now, depending what side of politics you want to fall on, it doesn't matter. We are on about the revolutionary 60s. They mm. were revolutionaries of the left. And Corbucci is a man of the left. And you can see throughout, as the 60s are going on, the left is somehow, the revolutionary left, is losing the war. We've got Vietnam still going on. The counterculture has come to an end. The 70s are coming into fruition. Mm-hmm. Things are changing. It is a microcosm, like you say, of the zeitgeist, a microcosm of what was happening at the time. I think even the title card references the fact that it's made like this was actual, this happened at the time, actual slaughters of people like this. So in a way, if it went with a tacked on happy ending, it wouldn't just have been an ill-fitting ending. It would have been kind of disrespectful. No, because it's a revolutionary film. And in the 70s, when the Poliziotesci films came about, they were almost reactionary. They were classed as being conservative. They were very much more the Dirty Harry vein, yeah. where, you know, it's politically conservative in a way. You, you're on the side of the authority. Do you think that's what did irk a lot of people who were who were very conservative? The fact that that happened, the fact that capitalism was being criticised and yeah. that you know, the authorities were being questioned, Maybe. they were being brought down. Maybe that's what made them so uncomfortable. And that's what makes Corbucci Corbucci. I love this film, Wayne. Second time watching for this podcast. As I said, I watched it for the first time last year and I was awed by it. One of my favourite westerns. Not just one of my favourite spaghetti westerns, one of my favourite westerns in general. I rank it up there with Leone's best work. It's not an epic grand spectacle, but it's dirty, it's grimy, it's political, it's nihilistic, it's Mm. mixed, it's everything you would want in a spaghetti western. It provides you so much material to talk about, so much for us to discuss. I like the fact it's not a grand epic. I like the fact it's not just another Leone picture, not just a, oh, this was another film that Sergio Leone made. No, it's a Corbucci picture. It's different. It's bleak. It's gritty. It's dark. I love a sad ending, a downbeat ending, if it's used right, if it's appropriate. And for this film, it really fit in. Any of these other endings just don't work. Corbucci may thought he was just working in genre, but by working in genre, he became so much more. You've been listening to episode 45 of In Film We Trust. Once again, I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. Join us next week where we will discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream.